right, welcome to 11th Hour. Uh, please take a seat. Um, we'll get started. And just a quick reminder to please turn off or silence your cell phones if you have them with you. Um, and also an announcement. I'll come around at the end with this microphone if you have any questions. We're recording the audio so we can capture them and everyone will be able to hear. As writers, we often recognize elements of, of our craft in disparate places, in a dance or a painting or in nature, and of course, in music. Today, Jeffrey Renard Allen will examine how five musical techniques, harmonic overtones, layering, voicing, distortion, and resonance, function in the construction of a narrative. Jeff is the author of five books, including the novels Song of the Shank, which was a finalist for the Penn Faulkner Award, and Rails Under My Back, which won the Chicago Tribune's Heartland Prize for Fiction, the short story collection Holding Pattern, which received the Ernest J. Gaines Award for Literary Excellence, and two collections of poetry. His other honors include the Chicago Public Library's 21st Century Award, a Whiting Writers Award, and a Guggenheim Fellowship. He is a professor of creative writing at the University of Virginia. Please join me in welcoming Jeffrey Renard Allen. Good morning. So, can you all hear me okay? Or, all right, great. Um, so you're all in trouble this morning for coming to this lecture. So. Sorry. Is there? Uh, how's that? Can, or I'm, I'm, you can't hear me well. Or, okay. Testing one, two, <laughs> three, four. Better. Hello. A little better. Hello. Testing one, two. <coughs> All right. Great. So I, I guess my joke didn't carry then. I said, you're <laughs> I said you're all in trouble for coming this morning. So it's just a little joke. Um, so uh, the the title of my lecture is the art of the art of play. Uh, I guess the full title would be the art of play, music and prose narrative, which is actually the um, title of a book that I'm working on. Um, working on in the sense that. It's mostly in my head and um, not on the page yet. I'm actually working on a, presently working on a book of short stories and I'm trying to finish by the end of the year. Um, but the idea of the book really came kind of spontaneously in the sense that, uh, first thing I would say is um, uh, people often ask me if I'm a musician because I often write about music in my fiction. Um, so for example, my last novel, Song of the Shank was about uh, a man named Thomas Green Wiggins, a 19th century pianist, um, African-American who was born a slave in Georgia. And he was primarily a classical performer. Um, so that was the subject of my last novel. Um, but I'm, I'm not a musician, or I am a musician only insofar that I'm a failed one, right? So meaning that back in the day I played music, I played guitar, and I played it for all the wrong reasons because you know, I thought it was cool and I thought I could get rich and I thought I could get girls and that kind of thing. Um, but, uh, but on the more serious side, I would say that like many African-American writers in particular, um, 
I, I have a, an ongoing relationship with music, uh, meaning that it's the way of, of thinking about music is also a way of thinking about the writing. So the long and short is that um, I guess about two years ago I began to give a series of lectures about uh, craft-related writing topics, and, um, and as it just so happens, they all ended up being about music. Uh, so that's how this project started, really. And um, just to give you a, a few things, so when I, when I first began thinking about the topic, uh, <coughs> when I first began thinking about the topic, I really began with sort of very sort of broad categories, you know, how does how does music, let's say, relate to, for example, um, the aesthetics of writing overall, or how does music relate to the various elements of writing? And this is not an esoteric question in the sense that there are often, um, or I should say, there's a lot of literature where many scholars and writers compare various aspects of writing to um, to music, right? That's that's been a, a an ongoing thing for probably at least a hundred years, if not longer. Um, but what I do, what I've also found is that a lot of these comparisons for me are very abstract, and you know, so there 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 are certain kinds of terms that um, that people draw upon, which really to me don't mean a whole lot. So that's that's kind of how it started. So um, I started with these very sort of general thoughts about music, and then I started to really think about some unusual things that I noticed in certain works that I like. So for example, uh, I gave a lecture about um, looking at certain books and stories where a writer will use an image involving sound or will use sound, but that uh, image of sound also involves some other kind of aspect of the physical sense, right? So sound plus, um, plus uh, another physical sensation. Actually, I found an example, which is probably not a good one, but nevertheless. Um, so if you would say something like, the fire waved its fingers, bursting into sound, right? So that, that's an image that uses both sound and the visual image of the fire. So I gave, a, I gave a talk where I looked at a number of texts that used this particular device, and then I realized that there isn't any term that specifically relates to this device. I mean, um, that is to say, there isn't any term that I, that as far as I know, in literature that relates to this particular device. And I began actually to ask um, many people that I admire, smart people, writers, and some of them mentors, and, and none of them could give me a good, good term. <laughs> so, so then I began to think, well, maybe there's a term in music that would relate to that particular, or, you know, that would have some kind of similarity and um, so, so, so that's how so I start to think a little bit like that. To, just to jump ahead a little bit. So then, uh, this really started to come together last year, about, I guess around this, t no, a little early last year, I got an a, a invitation from Oxford American to write a piece for the annual music issue. And it turns out that uh, this issue happens to be on blues music. And so the editor told me I could do whatever I wanted. Uh, so I decided that I would write a short story. Um, and it just so happens that I've been thinking about doing a short story that involved two real people. Um, actually, well, I'll come back to that image. But uh, the, two the two real people are Jimi Hendrix 
and the painter Francis Bacon, who actually never met, as far as I know, in real life. <laughs> so, but the, the premise of the story is, well, what, you know, what would have happened if they had met? And it turns out, of course, that they both lived in London at the same time. Uh, like a lot of people in those days, they both hung out in Tangier. Uh, and it turned out that actually Francis Bacon did do uh, some portraits of at least some people that Jimi Hendrix knew. I mean, he mostly painted uh, people he knew himself, his own friends. But I, when I did some research, surprise, surprise, I found that he had actually done a portrait of Mick Jagger, <laughs> of all people, um, which you will have a hard time tracking down. It's not in any of the Francis Bacon catalogs, meaning that um, Jagger must have paid Bacon so much money that he couldn't refuse, right? So, or something like that. Anyway, so, you know, uh, I think craft-related issues always have to, you know, always are best when they deal with the practical aspects of writing. So when I told the editor I would give him this story about Jimi Hendrix and Francis Bacon, I had no idea what I was going to write about, actually. And so what began to happen is I started to think about the two men. You know, I, I knew a lot about Jimi Hendrix already because I'd been reading about him for so many years. Um, uh, I did some research about Bacon. I didn't know a lot about Bacon's life and that kind of thing. But then, you know, more importantly, I, I, I started to ask my question, myself questions about how Bacon's painting um, and, and Jimi Hendrix's music related, had, you know, had a related, if, if, if at all. And that's really how I came up with, um, that's really the beginnings of the book, I would say. And so I started to think about this idea of distortion, which is one topic I'm going to talk about a little more later today. Uh, but first, to, to just to throw you all for a loop, um, as I mentioned, the book is called The Art of Play. And I realized when you read the description that you said, I'm, I'm going to talk about five topics. And, I, and this actually expanded to six, which shows you <laughs> how much how still in process this is. Um, I'm not going to try to explain these concepts in, in detail today, but I'm just, uh, so, so this, is a, this is essentially the premise of the book. Um, what I want to do in the opening chapter is to talk about works of prose narrative fiction, nonfiction, that deal very specifically with music or musicians to identify how certain writers think about music in terms of prose writing, if that makes any sense. So, for example, um, one of the great books that does this is Mike Wondachi's Coming Through Slaughter, if any of you know that book. Or, but there are others. Uh, um, I'm going to look at a book by the writer, novelist Albert Murray, a book by a writer named Jackie Kay, which is called Trumpet. Um, so anyway, the idea of this is let's, let's look at, let's, in the introduction, let's look at these books and let's talk about how these Let's consider how these writers are thinking about music and narrative. And then let's identify a group of techniques that we can then talk about more broadly in terms of all prose narratives. So what I'm specifically interested in the book is to take some really esoteric musical ideas and, to the, and then to apply them to texts that have nothing to do with music, right? That's, that's the essential premise of it. So. Uh, why would I want to do something so boneheaded as that? Well, um, part of the idea is, and you'll see this when I talk about one specific text, but part of the idea, part of the thing I'm trying to explore is 
the ways in which music can allow you to, to approach particular subjects in, in um, unusual or innovative ways or, or interesting ways. Uh, you know, so we'll, as we'll talk about. But so anyway, let me just give you quickly tell you a little bit about these concepts. And uh, I'm gonna. I think I should just name them so you can all be even more dumbfounded <laughs> rather than explain. So, um, so they're basically six ideas now, as opposed to, to five. Um, so one is. So I, I I actually was talking this whole thing about the image that I was talking about a minute ago. I, I talked to a, one of my former writing students who actually studied music, and I said, what, you know, what would, what would a musician call this thing? And he says, oh, that's a, that's a harmonic overtone, right? So, so one chapter will deal with harmonic overtones, which is this device where a writer uses sound to, to, um, to not just talk about hearing, but to talk about another aspect of, the, of physical sensation. So that's one. Um, a second idea is what I'm calling layering, which has to do with things, and music has to do with things such as orchestration, or let's say in, in what we call hip-hop music, it would have to do with what we, what we would call sampling. Um, so layering, or uh, in, in terms of prose narrative, I'm gonna talk about it in terms of what I call thick narrative these various ways the writers try to layer the narrative as an aspect of, uh, of musical thinking. So that's two. Number three is a technique in music that's called voicings, or one could say voices and substitutions. Voicing is a very kind of simple idea. Um, so if you, you, if, let's say if you play a simple chord, that has three or four notes. The, note, the notes of the chord don't change, but you, if you, for example, if you play guitar, piano, if you play a C major chord here, you know, if you, and if you play a C major chord there, even though it's the same notes, the C major sounds differently, right? Uh, and then, particularly in jazz music, with this idea of substitutions, a good jazz pianist uh, will know how to substitute other chords in place of the C major. So. Um, particularly when you're doing what's called accompaniment or accompaniment to musicians who are improvising. So this idea of essentially taking, in terms of narrative, I'm thinking about narratives in particular which seem to tell the same version of the same story, right? This is what, this is my idea of voicing a substitution. Sorry. Oh, oh someone said something. Um, that's number three. Uh, number four, it gets even more abstract now. Number four is a, a curious term I came across called polyphonic pressure. <laughs> polyphonic pressure. I don't know what I'll call it in the book, but that one's too much on my mouth full. Uh, but specifically, what this has to do with really, um, in, terms of, uh, in terms of electronic music, back, particularly back in the days when, uh, before digital technology, um, in the um, electric keyboards, uh, polyphonic pressure essentially has to do with uh, it's a it's a, a type of it's a keyboard um, what would I call it a keyboard function where one could play a note and then use something on the keyboard to make the note to, to slide the note into a higher pitch or to a lower pitch or does that make sense? So 
I'm playing an A note on the keyboard, but I can slide it into an A, uh, you know, A plus or B flat as, as it would be, or lower a lower note. Um, but it's also a very similar technique to what we generally call um, um, bends and 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 slurs and so on, particularly in music and, and blues music and jazz and such. So to give an, uh, an example of this musically, some of you may remember that old um, TV series from the 80s called Miami Vice, right? Which was, the music was done by a guy named Jan Hammer, this kind of jazz rock keyboardist. Um, beyond that particular movie, he did an album about 30 years ago where the whole idea of the album was to make his keyboard sound like a guitar, right? And uh, this, uh, was made possible because of this idea of polyphonic pressure, these kinds of electronic keyboards that allow you to bend notes, which is not something you can do on a, on a, on a piano, right? It's only possible really on an electronic keyboard. So what I'm particularly, in terms of that, what I'm particularly interested in in, in terms of narrative are types of, um, are types of narrative that have, these, that have various kinds of, of changes in the tone of the book that move quickly in tonal changes. Are you all still with me there on this? Okay. All right, then um, I'm going to say quickly this idea of distortion, which I'm going to talk about. And then that's number five. And then the last chapter of the book will also be uh, a kind of conclusion. And I'm going to talk about the idea of resonance, right? I think which is fairly obvious. So those are the six ideas I'm looking at in terms of the book. So wish me luck with that. But <laughs> so I want to start though by talking about. I'm going to talk just a little bit about uh, distortion today, and I want to start with these images. Uh, what do I need to do here? Oh, that's my own keyboard. <laughs> okay. I just. I think you all know what. Jimi Hendrix's music sounds like, so I won't play any of it. Uh, this is, these are just some visual helpers today, but, um, so what is, what exactly is distortion? Well, what it means very specifically in music, um, it, well, if you, if you do some research about it, the origins are usually dated to the 1950s to some, some guys were in a recording studio and they were trying to cut a record and then some guy had trouble with his amp and it started making this weird noise. And uh, when they played the recording back, they said, hey, well, that, that weird noise is kind of cool, <laughs> you know. So that's the origins of distortion. And then it became a very conscious technique, of course, and um, particularly in, originally in what's called urban blues, right? People like Muddy Waters and uh, Howling Wolf and these kinds of people. So starting in the 1950s um, in places like Chicago, which is where I'm originally from. So the, the, the idea of distortion, very specifically in its origins, it has to do with the old days of vacuum tube amplifiers, right? Uh, where the, the sound was played so loudly through the, the tubes that they would begin to vibrate and change the sound of the, of the actual uh, instrument, right? So one is, so one, so if one plays, uh, let's say, an A chord, just to keep things simple, or a C chord, or a C note, whatever, 
uh, it's still the C note, but now it comes out with this distorted sound. Right, and then of course in the 1960s, um, many, uh, uh, many companies began to develop, to develop these various devices that were used to distort the, the sound. And so this is Jimi Hendrix's rig, as, as it were, um, that roughly is what he used when he played at Woodstock. Compared to what, you know, digital technology today, this is quite primitive, right? But you'll see here that he has just a few little things. There's a crybaby wah-wah. <laughs> There's something called a fuzz face, which is a box for distortion. There's this thing called the Octavia, which changes the, the pitch of the note by an octave. Um, and then this thing here controls the univibe. The univibe uh, gives a kind of um, a kind of a wavery sound, uh, for lack of a better term. I guess it's what people would later call the phase shifter or flanger. Uh, and then there were his amplifiers. So this is a very simple system that he used around 1970, the same year that he died, actually. So how does that work in terms of the visual? Well, let's go back to Francis Bacon here. Uh, so my story really began with thinking some about this idea of distortion, obviously distortion in music, and then... So this is one of Bacon's triptychs of, um, of the painter, actually, Lucian Freud. Some of you may know that this particular painting or series of paintings um, so the uh, to date it, it's it, it has the highest sale of any artwork right and some of you may know this I forget the year uh, I think in 2011 or so it sold for 400 million dollars right so that's the highest but Bacon himself in at the height of his career was making about a million pounds per painting so he was actually the financially he was the most successful artist in the world at the time. And this is in, of course, after the death of Picasso. Anyway, so these, these are kinds of simple things. Uh, so what's important here, really what's important here in terms of Bacon, if we start with Bacon and this idea of distortion, um, <coughs> when Bacon first gained celebrity right around 1945, just really after, at the end of the Second World War, when Bacon gained celebrity, in, in England, of course, as we all know, he was a he was a British painter, born in Ireland originally, but he was based in London. When Bacon gained celebrity in 1945, uh, Americans were now doing what was called abstract painting, right? With what often beca became called abstract expressionism. That is to say that American painters were interested no longer in, in representing. Uh, figures of forms at all, but in, in going completely beyond representation, right? That's how it starts uh, here. So Bacon, however, was very much um, always in his career interested in, in still in representing figures. So what happens is, of course, these figures are distorted. We, 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 can, we understand what that means in terms of this particular person, Lucian Freud, that he's painting. So this is how the distortion happens in the painting itself, meaning that 
uh, it's it's uh, representing reality, representing figures, but figures in a in a distorted form. So what I'm interested in in terms of narrative is that same idea. I'm interested in writers who take reality and distort it so it looks something like that, meaning that it looks like something unreal, but it's not, if that makes any sense. So I'm interested, I'm, I'm interested in the idea of distortion, as I, I like to think of it as a kind of alternative realism, that is to say. Um, I'm interested in the ways that certain writers can distort reality in fiction or in nonfiction, for that matter, whereby reality seems unreal, but it isn't, but it still stays with the in, within the boundaries of the real world as we know it. Does that make sense? So um, if I were to take an example, let's say from television, for any of you know, the, the probably all of you know the, the show Breaking Bad, right? Uh, so Breaking Bad has that weird idea of, uh, of Walt making the meth so pure that it's blue in color, which is, I suppose, possible, but very unlikely, right? Uh, so it's a kind of distortion of, of an actual thing. Or similarly, when Walt goes into his bad guy persona, he, it's represented by the pork by hat, uh, and it's also represented by that name he gives himself, Heisenberg, right? So, so that's, that's kind of the same idea. Uh, so very specifically, what I'm interested in with distortion in terms of narrative really are ways that writers push reality to such an extreme that it seems unreal, right? But, but, um, but again, the world of the narrative stays within the confines of the natural world as opposed to the supernatural. So distortion is not magical realism. It's not anything or any other genre involving the fantastic. Um, it's not surrealism, which of course is an effort to present a, a type of dreamlike reality. Uh, and it's not what we would generally call expressionism, which is where a, a writer writes in such a way that the world is distorted through the, um, through the consciousness of a character, right? So expressionism as in, let's say, Faulkner's novel, um, uh, Faulkner's novel, Sound and the Fury, that many of you know. Uh, early scene in the novel, the, the character Benji is, tells us that he says, I was walking down the street and the ground up and hit me in the face, right? Well, the ground didn't up and hit him in the face. He actually tripped and fell, right? But, but he is a 30-year-old man whose mental capacity is limited. So, so the novel is told through the eyes of his limited understanding of the world. So that's, that's what we would call um, expressionism. So, so this is what, this is what we're going to talk a little bit about today. I'll say a little bit about it and then you can ask questions. Um, so I want to talk very specifically about a novel that I read a couple of years ago and that continues to impress me. And, um, the book is called A Little Life, and it's by the writer Hanya Yanagihara. She is an Asian-American writer who is originally from Hawaii, but who's lived in New York for many years. Now she, I think she's the editor, uh, she's actually the editor of the New York Times Magazine, I believe. 
But um, so a little life behind Yanagihara. I first read the novel, as I mentioned a couple of years ago, when I was serving as a judge, in fact, for the National Book Award in Fiction. Um, and it was a finalist for the award, but it didn't win uh, because the other judges were boneheads. But that's another, <laughs> that's another story. Um, anyway, it's the book that should have won. But so, so a few things. So how does the how does the distortion work in the book? Uh, it works. It starts by this way. Uh, the book is set in New York, but it's not quite the New York that we know. It's a stylized setting. So one of the ideas I want to suggest is that one of the techniques of distortion involves using a stylized setting. So how does the stylization work in this book? It basically means that uh, if you follow the story, the story covers a, a period of 30 or 40 years, and it's mostly set in New York. Uh, that's the primary setting. But the thing about the setting Within these 30 or 40 years, New York never changes, right? It's the New York of today, but it's a New York that extends, uh, the New York of today that extends 30 years into the future, right? So does that make any sense, right? So it's not, it's not quite a real, it's, it's not quite the New York we know because it's a sort of New York plus, right? Because it's distorted in this way to extend into the future. And so the, the book, uh, it's a long novel, by the way. It's about, in hardcover, it was about 900 pages. Uh, the book is essentially about four men who attend, who attend college in Boston. And then when the book opens, they are all living in New York. They're all right out of college. They're all in their early 20s. And they're all living in New York and trying to get established on their various careers. Um, one guy is named J.B. He's an African-American artist who, uh, African-American artist from kind of a lower class background and kind of the jerk of the novel too. He, he, will, he will do anything or use anyone to get ahead. Uh, second character is also African-American. His name is Matthew. He is from an upper middle class background. Um, ultimately, he decides to go into business. A third character is named Willem, or uh, Willem. Um, Willem is the sole white character of the principal four. He is from the Midwest, from a farming community in the Midwest, um, but his parents are first generation a European. So he is the son of uh, first generation European immigrants. Uh, Willem, Willem is an actor. And in the course of the novel, he becomes a quite famous actor. And the last character is a man named Jude, who is never identified racially, other than, other than the fact that we're told that he's something other than white, but no one quite knows what he is, right? Uh, the only thing we know about Jude when the book begins is that <coughs> uh, he has to make use of crutches at times, um, and that for whatever reason, he never shows much of his body. He keeps his body covered. So the, that's, that's essentially the how the story begins. So what happens, though, is the story also has what I would call an exaggerated or stylized plot. So and, and over the course of these 900 pages, you begin to piece Jude's past, uh, past together. The, the novel's written in such a way that Information about Jude's past is not revealed to us 
because Jude himself refuses to, to remember the things that he's lived through, right? And what we begin to learn in the book is that Jude has had this uh, tremendously horrific life, right? And that he suffers and has suffered both psychologically and physically. So, so one of the, in fact, um, one of the things that, that, one of the reasons I really became interested in this novel is, is that it's one, it's, it's, an, it's a rare example of, of, writer, of a writer who writes about physical pain, right? So uh, some of you may know that that's ac- that is actually a rare thing in writing. As writers, we tend to write about psychological pain, but we tend not to write about physical pain. Uh, there's a fact of, um, there's a book by the scholar Elaine Scarry called The Body and Pain, which was published about 30 years ago. It's about this very, about this very topic. But in any case, to, to go back to that, so we know that when the book begins, we know that Jude is in physical pain, but we don't know the source mm-hmm. of his pain. So then, um, over the course of the novel, we begin to piece together his story. So if I, if I, once I tell you the story, you can see in, in how it's exaggerated. So the long and short of it is that Jude was born an orphan, and then he was raised in a um, monastery where the monks sexually abused him. So one of the monks uh, befriends Jude and says, I'm going to take you away from here and you'll have a good life. And so they run away together and they hole up in a hotel. And then this monk proceeds to make Jude prostitute himself with numerous men on every day of the week and for several years, right? So, so this kind of thing. So when the monk is found out somehow, the cops come to arrest him. And then the monk commits suicide. So then Judas take, the cops take Jude into custody and put him in a boy's home. And then in the boy's home, the counselors sexually molest him, right? So he attempts to escape from the boy's home. He is caught, and then he is severely beaten. And uh, this is, as we discover now, is how he has these extremely severe scars, scars on his back, right? And the source of uh, some of his problems. Eventually, though, he does escape the boy's home, and he's befriended by a doctor who says, uh, I, w- I will help you. But what the doctor does is he imprisons Jude in his basement, and then he abuses Jude. And then after abusing Jude for a period of time, he tells him to run away. I want you to run and leave here. And as Jude is running away, the doctor gets in his car, he runs over Jude. And in doing so, he inflicts serious damage on Jude's legs, which is the reason that Jude has to use crutches. So, so it's hard to believe that all of that would happen to any one person, <laughs> right? Um, so that's, that's part of Jude's background. So, but the, the stylized story doesn't end there. In the present action, uh, one of the things we know about Jude is that he never has any kind of physical or sexual relationships or romantic relationships with anyone because of this uh, tremendous suffering that he's endured. However, he and the character Willem, the actor, they fall in love, and this is the first time in Jude's life where he has, where he is happy. In fact, that part of the novel was called The Happy Years, right? The Happy Years. However, no surprise, the happy years <laughs> don't last long. Um, very abruptly, William and one of the other characters, Malcolm, the rich guy, 
uh, they are killed in a car accident, right? And so that's in the present action. And, and essentially from that moment on, Jude, Jude's, um, actually I, I, I sort of, I forgot something here. Uh, oh, yes, I f let me backtrack for just a second. In the, b before any of that happens, Jude actually does get romantically involved with a, with a man who, um, importantly, who abuses Jude, and so he resumes the abuse, and then uh, he rapes Jude at one point, he throws him down an elevator shaft, which causes tremendous damage to his legs, right? And then, then the happy years come, but then William and Malcolm get killed in the car crash. And then Jude essentially hangs on for three years or so, and then he commits suicide, you know, and that's kind of, that's the story. Very happy story, right? So, right. so um, if there's a saving grace in the book, which it, it is the fact that at early, quite early in the novel, Jude befriends an older man, a lawyer, who essentially adopts Jude legally. And uh, Jude also writes his letters about his experiences, and he leaves these experiences behind for the man to find. So in some ways, the... The man, the lawyer, the older lawyer is, is a kind of stand-in for the writer. And I think one of the messages of the book, uh, probably the most important message of the book, is that it's important for, write, for us as writers to tell these kinds of stories, which often really don't get told in fiction. So, uh, not surprisingly, for whatever reason. Um, so anyway, so so that's a that's another level of how the of how the distortion happens in the book, and I think one of the things I would argue is that uh, this what what would otherwise be a melodramatic story is able to work in this novel successfully because the writer sort of puts the book in a kind of um, stylized setting which is outside of time, if that makes any sense, right? That's one of the ideas. Um, and what else can I say about it? Uh, there are a lot of other kinds of things that happen in the novel. So, um, so for example, part of the idea of, of the distortion of the book, too, is this notion about the importance of the writer writing about the body, which is something that we don't do enough of, I would say. Um, so when the book first begins, there is a scene where the artist, J.B., is taking his three friends around New York to different barber shops, and a very kind of humorous scene. And he's having his friends collect uh, hair off the barbershop floors. And his, uh, he is, um, his first artistic endeavor is to make sculpture from hair, right? That's, that's the idea. Um, eventually, he becomes a very successful painter, and uh, but like, a lot like Francis Bacon, though, which, which is interesting. Um, he doesn't paint people directly, but he takes photographs of all of his friends. He takes photographs of Jude and the other three men, and then he, he does his paintings from the photographs. And that was actually the way that Bacon himself worked. He didn't have people come sit in his studio, but he had a photographer who would go uh, photograph people and, or his subjects, and then he would make his paintings from the photographs, which is also, a, I would argue, a metaphor for how distortion works in the novel, which is this idea that it, it puts a kind of layer of separation between the events and the telling of the story, right? Uh, or how to put that differently. Uh, so this is a, this is a novel uh, that's about 
suffering and abuse, but it's also a novel that's posing the question, how do we write about suffering and abuse without either exploiting the subject or without you know, um, allowing the subject to become melodramatic, if that makes any sense. Right? So the point being that uh, when the book starts and, Ju and JB is making these hair sculptures, it's a metaphor really for making art from the, from, the, from the body itself, right? If that makes any sense, right? So in, in many ways, this is a novel that's been made from all of the horrible things that Jude's body endures, not, not to say what he endures psychologically. Um, so I would say that's another aspect. So these kinds, of, so distortion in this book happens in, in, in these three principal ways, beginning with the setting, uh, I would say then, with this idea of, of the focus on the body and physical pain, and then thirdly, the question of writing about the body. I think it's also important to, to say one other thing happened. The distortion also happens in, in, in terms of how the characterization occurs in the book, which is to say that the characters are all flat, if that makes any sense. Uh, what do I mean by that? What I mean is that, um, Let's say for Jude, for example, because of what Jude has endured as a child, and he is unable really to move beyond that. Uh, so he never really changes as a character in the novel. Um, you know, uh, and that's true, I would say, for all of the other characters. So, I mean, Jude is, he is a rich character in the sense that he has many interesting aspects to his personality and, and to his person. Uh, he's a great cook. He, he can play music. Um, he ends up being a really great lawyer, uh, various other kinds of things. So he, he ha he, he's rich in personality, but he never changes. So that's, that's how the flatness happens in the book. This is not a, a, a novel about change. In fact, uh, I would argue that the, book, that the book works against the idea of change, um, which is to say it works against a very kind of American belief that we that we have in redemption, that things will be fine in the end. And I think that the, this book is arguing that for certain people like Jude, uh, things can never be fine, right? They are essentially doomed from the start, right? So in that sense, the book is a, it also kind of resurrects an old literary form, which we usually call naturalism, right? Naturalism, this idea that um, our, our lives are determined by biological or environmental forces. And not everyone's life in the book is determined, certainly, that way. But Jude's life certainly is determined from, from its own origins. And uh, in addition to this naturalistic belief that's present in the novel, the author also makes extensive use of nature imagery in the novel. So, for example, I've left out so much of the book, but... Um, one of the ways that, you know, essentially I mentioned earlier that Jude has found a way to not remember the past, but once he has this relationship with the man in the present who abuses him, he begins to remember all of these horrible things that, that's happened to him. And in his own mind, he characterizes his memories as, as hyenas, right? So these, um, you know, these animals which wish to prey on him. Uh, and interesting enough, when Jude... Uh, decides to kill himself, 
uh, and at, towards the end of the novel, he used he does so in a very painful way, not surprisingly. Uh, but he induces an embolism. And he injects himself with a needle, essentially injects himself with a needle and injects oxygen into his blood. And the needle is described as being as thick as a hummingbird's beak, right? So the, am the animal imagery is presented even that way. So, so I, would, I would also argue that that's, again, another aspect of the stylized uh, world of the novel, the, the, the way that the, the book uses startling imagery in this manner. I could read a passage from the novel, but maybe I won't do that. Um, so what does any of that have to do with music? So, <laughs> so that's how this all works. So I'll stop there for now and see if there are any thoughts or questions or complaints. Or anything. Uh, I think she's going to go first. Yeah. Thanks. I've been reading a lot of Donna Tartt lately. Do you think that that's another example of this distortion? I must confess, I've never read her. So <laughs> she lives actually in Charlottesville, I believe, where I live, or somewhere near there. So. Put me in the mind of the Underground Railroad and the stylization of that. I'm wondering if you could comment on that. Oh, uh, I, <laughs> I hate to say I haven't read that either. <laughs> uh, you know, actually, uh, Colson uh, is an old friend. I've known him for many years, and I really admire his work, particularly his first two novels, but I haven't read this one. But interestingly enough, this novel, A Little Life, is kind of a slave narrative, too, you know, uh, because it has, there's, a lot, there's um, intense interest in the idea of, of freeing oneself from the past, and in, in some ways, the, the lawyer works as the kind of stand-in. Uh, you know, as you know, many of the old slave narratives were told, were told by the slaves to a, to a writer who wrote the stories. And, and in a sense, this is what's happening in the novel, too. <coughs> the Jew leaves his letters behind for the lawyer to tell, if that makes any sense. Right. So the book has that kind of metaphoric relationship. I just wanted to ask about the point of view of the novel you were talking about. Is it from Jude's point of view in first person or third? Oh, actually, that's a great question. Um, it actually, it's mostly in third person limited, but uh, it, and it assumes different point of view characters, meaning that uh, when I think when the book begins, actually, it's in, um, it's in, actually, I think it's in JB's, or it's in JB's point of view, the artist, and then it goes to, to Martin, and there are some sections from Willem's point of view, and then there are some sections from Jude's point of view, which, with this strange, you know, um, conceit that Jude won't remember the past. But then also, there are sections in first person, but they're all told through the lawyer's point of view, which again is, I think, a way of making the notion that the lawyer is a stand-in for the writer in the same way that J.B., the artist, is a stand-in for the writer. So, so both third and first. Sorry, you may have mentioned it, but I didn't catch it. Um, you mentioned resonance as one of the uh, features of music and writing. Um, can you describe that? Uh, yeah, maybe you could describe it for me. But I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I think the way, I, the way I'm thinking about that in, is really as a final chapter, too, as I mentioned earlier. 
but um, I would argue that all of these, all of these techniques in, in a particular narrative, if they are done effectively, they will create a story that resonates with the reader. So in that very kind of simple sense, really. So, or, you know, really we're talking some about how to, uh, how does one make the story come off the page so that, that, the, that it lives with the reader, which is, you know, easier said than done, right? So I'm looking at some of those kinds of, uh, I, I should say I'm looking at certain novels that, that I think can do that well. And I think this is a story, A Little Life is a story, obviously that's stayed with me. I haven't been able to let it go, you know. If I was hearing right and listening right, you talked about that this was set in like a 30-year in the future New York City. Yeah. It's somewhat stylized. How did she create that as a character actually in the book and how did she use that? Um, uh, what do you think her, um, how did that enhance the story? Yeah, in interviews, um, uh, this was her second novel. And the, her first novel is, uh, it's set in like um, Polynesia, and it's very kind of dense and, and I, I should say slow moving, but yeah, dense and slow moving, <laughs> right? But very well done, you know. But in interviews, she said that she wanted this novel to move very quickly and to read a lot like a fairy tale, right? So, um, so I think that's part of the I, part of the reason why she sets New York in this real in this stylized uh, as, as a stylized place. Um, but what also happens in the book is that there are numerous metaphors where place and setting factor importantly in the novel. So for example, um, as Jude's body deteriorates, ultimately he ends up having to be in a wheelchair and can't walk and that kind of thing. As his body begins to be deteriorate, he also begins to live in larger and larger spaces. So when the novel ends, he's living in this huge loft. But, uh, but at the same time, his body has completely failed. So one of the ideas in the book is that Jude himself is, is constantly longing for a place to belong, uh, a home, for lack of, you know, lack of a better term. Uh, and this is represented fairly early in the novel when, when he runs away with that one monk, and this monk tells him, um, he says, oh, you know, You've only got to prostitute yourself for five years. Once you turn 16, we can leave here. We'll have enough money, and we're going to go live in a cabin in the woods, right? You know, so, so the idea of, of, of a setting of this place of belonging is presented very much in that way. And also, the monk gives Jude like a um, toy house, one of these kinds of sets where you, where you put the house together with, with these various pieces. And then, interestingly enough, Jude is, he's very pleased to receive the house because, you know, he's naive as a, as a kid. But then later he learns that, that, uh, that the house has some pieces missing, which, you know, is obviously symbolic of, it, of his own life, right? So I think, um, so that's part of the way the book happens. But also when the novel begins, it's set on a very small street in New York called Lispinard Street. Which, pro which most people have never even heard of, even most New Yorkers, right? So I don't think I've ever been there, but, but it's, actually, it's, it's actually a street in New York. And um, so in some ways, this little corner of the city, this one little street is a, is a stand-in for this entire city, if that makes any sense, right? Um, 
So, you know, in, in that sense, really, because Jews' life has involved so much confinement, New York, the New York, the, this period that stretches across 30 years becomes a kind of metaphor for that confining space that never changes, right? In the same way that Jew never changes as a character, that makes any sense. I apologize for that telephone call that I got, but okay. I and I did leave, but it was just as you were about to discuss the the sixth element, and I'd like to know what it is. And I also, and I'm suffering from middle age memory syndrome, but uh, the writer of Gravity's Rainbow does does he use any of uh, any of these things? Uh, you think to uh, to distort and make things uh, more, you know, sensual? Well, I think. Uh, I would say gravity, to answer that question first, I would say gravity's rainbow is um, a great example of what we typically think of as postmodern, uh, you know, metafiction. Uh, in fact, when you read that novel, once you get to the end, you realize that you've been watching a movie, as it were, you know. So it's, it's, not, a, it's not a distorted reality, but it's a, com a completely fictional reality, if that makes any sense, right? Um, I think this is something a little different again, whereby you, you take a real place and you make it into something that's slightly different, but that's still within the boundaries of the real world. Uh, to take another television analogy, um, for those of you know who, who, those of you know the series The Wire that was so celebrated, there was that season where the, um, this one police captain decides that he's going to make drugs legal in one part of Baltimore, you know, and uh, all of the, the residents there begin to call it Hamsterdam, right? <laughs> right. And so, you know, that whole Hamsterdam, it's the same kind of idea again, like this. You know, that probably couldn't happen in the real world, right, in, in Baltimore or anywhere else, but within the confines of the, of the show and how the narrative of the show operates, it's very much believable, if that makes any sense. So that's a kind of, again, a kind of distortion of the actual place. Yeah. Oh, and number six was, I think I, well, I think I mentioned distortion is number five, and number six was resonance. Right, yeah. Thanks so much. This is really exciting to me. Um, I'm wondering if you could go back to number one, the harmonic overtones. Okay. <laughs> um, as, a, as a singer myself, that's something I've been thinking about, sort of particularly as a way to um, collapse time, maybe, or to, to be able to draw in multiple generational perspectives on a story at once. Could you yeah. talk more about what you're thinking there? Um, yeah, that's a great question. So... So, for example, just to, I mentioned Michael Andachi's novel, Coming Through Slaughter. There's a scene, um, and, and how many of you know that book? Any of you know that book? Or, okay. So, yeah, I should run out and read it. It's a great, really great novel. He's one of the great writers of the world, right? Uh, anyway, it's a novel that's about um, Buddy Bolden, who was this jazz musician in New Orleans, um, who never got a chance to record, and essentially he, he was probably schizophrenic and ended up being confined to a mental hospital and, it, and you know, and was there for 30 years and died. That's, you know, so the book, the book is essentially Andachi's attempt to recreate Buddy Bolden's life based on the few facts that we have about him. 
But, uh, but there's a really wonderful moment early in the book when Bolden is playing with his band, and he says, um, he, and he essentially says, he, he says to them, uh, I want you to punch a hole in the window. You know, what he means by that is, I want you to play louder, but he uses this unusual metaphor, right? So the, so the sound there is being used to represent something visual, but that's later becomes an important metaphor in the novel because, um, among other things, it's, it's used a lot in the novel, but uh, there's a, a crucial scene in the novel where Andachi suddenly enters the novel as the narrator, and he's actually in the barbershop where Buddy Bolden worked, and he talks about how he, put, how he puts his hand through the mirror and he reaches and grabs hold of Buddy Bolden. And uh, which is, of course, a, a way of talking about how he's trying to write his story. But he also talks about the fact that he and Buddy Bolden are the same age. Uh, you know, the, he's the same age now that Buddy Bolden was when he went insane, and all these kinds of things. So it's a book about it's a book about the what are the what are the dangers of art, and uh, what does it take to achieve great art? And you know, and sometimes it. it it claims your life, but these are the kinds of questions that he's posing, uh, th if that makes any sense. This, this image, really, of, of how sound uh, speaks to writing, how sound, how sound or music speaks to the visual, the mirror, and, um, and there are the kinds of mirrorings like that, or the mirror itself, uh, that, that's used in the novel as an image, if that helps any. Maybe time for one more question. Hi, um, I wonder if you can give us um, uh, an example of, uh, for you, of the polyphonic pressure okay. in literature. Yeah. Um, I, I'm thinking about that mostly in terms of, of, of moments within, let's say moments within a scene where the tone changes within the scene. I think that's largely, I'm thinking about in terms of tonal changes. Obviously in music, these we're talking about the ch how a pitch changes, um, as, as I was saying before, but I'm thinking about this in terms of books that have radical shifts in tone, right? particularly within even a scene, if that makes any sense, right? So I mentioned earlier about, um, I was talking about the idea of substitutions and voice scenes, which is where you play this, the C major, not here, but play it at a different position. Uh, in that case, I'm interested in stories which tend, these, the kinds of narratives which tend to tell the same story uh, again. So that might be, a, that might involve a change in point of view. Some of you may know, for example, like a great example of a book like The Collector, John Fowles' novel, The Collector, where the, you essentially get the same story told twice first through the point of view of the man who kidnaps this woman, and then the second point of view is the woman herself who, who tells the other, you know, whatever. These. So, you know, shifts in point of view in terms of, of, uh, of substitutions. Um, but I'm also interested in, in a, uh, one of my favorite novels is a little book called um, The Daydreaming Boy, which is about, it doesn't matter what it's about, but it, it essentially tells the same story twice with some differences. Right, but the differences involve changes in tone, which are also revelations and new types of meaning. If that makes any sense.
Oh, thank you.